0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. If you weren't here last week, I hope you'll take the time to listen to last week's podcast, not necessarily so that you get to listen to me, but I believe the content of what we looked at last week is so important regarding the priestly order of Melchizedek and what we find out further in the the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, as to why Melchizedek is such an important figure in how he sets us up to better understand who Jesus Christ is for us as our high priest and why we can accurately refer to Christ in that way and why he can uh, accurately serve in that capacity based on how God had set up the the functioning order of the priest in that Christ is a better priest than the Levitical priesthood. Um, And we noted that last week. We said that uh, the whole passage in Genesis 14. The whole chapter, I believe, is put there to set us up for Hebrews chapter 7. That there were a lot of things that happened in the life of Abram that's not included in the book of Genesis. This, this uh, story is, this account of him and, and the army that was defeated is included in Genesis, and I believe it's there specifically because the author of Hebrews needed that story to affirm Jesus Christ to his Jewish audience. And we saw that last week, that ultimately God establishes the presence of Melchizedek in the past to rightly establish Christ as the superior priest in the present. And we said that he ultimately brings eternal righteousness and peace to his people. So Jesus is even a better priest than Melchizedek, um, and we noted that last week. We said that ultimately it's not really important who Melchizedek is. We looked at some possibilities of his identity doesn't really matter who he is. Doesn't matter if he's Shem or if he's a, a Christophany, meaning Jesus in, the, in a physical form before he comes in the New Testament. The, the identity of him is not important. We know that because scripture doesn't reveal it to us. If it was important, then it would be explicitly stated, I think, for us. Instead, his presence is there to simply establish a precedent that God at times appoints a priest irregardless of his genealogy that the Levitical priesthood had to trace it to Aaron, that Jesus is not from Aaron, that he's a better priest. And we said that if this story wasn't here, that the author of Hebrews would be presenting something that the Jewish people would have never accepted. You can't have a priest that's not tied to the priestly order of Aaron. And the author of Hebrews says you can, because you you know of Melchizedek, the, the high priest, the, the great priest of the Most High God, and so he sets, he he reminds of them, he reminds the Jewish people of this precedent that's already been set, and then he introduces Christ as a better priest. And so um, I would encourage you to listen to that if you didn't get a chance to, uh, to be here with us last week. Um, we also kind of looked at how Melchizedek responds in that situation, that instead of wanting to claim some uh, glory for himself in the midst of that, that he celebrates Abram's victory, instead of... Wondering why God had not used him to rescue Lot and these people. He instead highlights and celebrates the victory of others, which is oftentimes difficult for us. That in our pride and selfishness, we don't celebrate the victories of others. Instead, we want to push for our own self-glory. And Melchizedek serves as a great example of one who uh, highlights the victories of others. Um, And then we said that Abram and Melchizedek's relationship to each other was such a mutually uplifting experience for both of them. That they're back and forth celebrating each other and what God is doing in each other's life. And and it's another example of how we're to interact with each other. That we're to celebrate what God is doing in the lives of each other. We're to mutually upbuild each other um, in our relationships as Christians. Which brings us to uh, kind of the closing uh, points of Genesis chapter 14. And so I wanted to direct your attention back to verse 20. Back to verse 20. It says, and blessed be God, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. We're going to pause here today and uh, look specifically at this concept of tithing. Um, I'm going to throw up our summary sentence here for you. Um In order to fight our tendency to covet the things of this world, we should pause and consider our giving habits regularly to ensure we are faithfully using what God has entrusted to us for his glory and the good of others. Now, I'm going to tell you um, real quick that this is this is a I believe this is a poor passage, a poor passage to develop a theology of tithing around, okay? Um, I don't think that this passage, nor the mirroring passage in Hebrews, gives us a lot of insight or detail in how to give, how much to give, anything like that. The reason we are going to talk about that topic, that concept from this passage in Genesis, is because so many people do try to use it in that way. OK, so while I don't think that this passage gives us a lot of specific insight into what we're to give in the New Testament context, I do think that it, it should probably cause us to stop and pause and think about our giving just because we do have an example of a man of God giving money. OK, giving a tithe. And I do think it gives us reason in our our summary sentence to to stop and pause and consider our own giving habits in light of what God's word does say about that topic. Okay, so we're not going to build much case for everything that we're going to talk about today from this passage. But we are going to use this passage as an example of when we're preaching through scripture verse by verse. There are times when we come to a section to where we say, okay, let's let's stop here for just a second and think about this from a topical standpoint. What does this mean for me? What does scripture teach about this uh, across the board and not just right here? Okay. So in order to fight our tendency to covet the things of this world, we should pause and consider our giving habits regularly to ensure we are faithfully using what God has entrusted to us for his glory and the good of others. Okay. So some initial thoughts. This is not a helpful text in building a case for tithing as a rigid 10% of our income. This is not a helpful text for that. I'm going to share with you in just a second why that's the case. Um, But again, we are pausing here because as I was studying yesterday and, and kind of evaluating, are we done with Genesis 14? Do we move to Genesis 15? I kept coming back to this because I have heard people use this passage to validate why we're to give 10%. And so it led me to go back and look at our discussion on money and our teaching on money back in 2011. So as we were kicking off our church plant, you'll remember that we started off with a series on money and how a Christian views money. And so my study yesterday led me back to those notes. We did a, I want to say it was a four or five, maybe six week series on that. Um, And those sermons were spread out over the course of that time. And so as I was going back and reading through it, I was heavily convicted about things that um, that had convicted me back in 2011 that the further I've gotten away from it, the less mindful I've been about some of those things. And so it was refreshing for me to just go back and work through all of my notes again yesterday from 2011. And what I tried to do was to pull some of those things out. So we're not gonna do a five or six week series again on it. I would encourage you to go back and maybe if you've got time in your week to listen to some of those sermons. Those are preserved for us in our podcast. I don't need to reteach all of those things again. I can direct your attention back to those things because they're just as important today as they were in 2011 when we were starting our church. But I do believe it's it's, it's profitable for us to pull some of those things once again today and to consider those things together. Um, Some reasons that I believe this is not a helpful text for uh, understanding the concept of tithing. One, there's no mandate in Genesis or Hebrews to follow the example that Abram sets here. There's, There's nothing in the two contexts that would tell us Abram did something that all of us should be doing. What we have instead is tithing being described rather than being prescribed. So There's a difference there. The text, both in Genesis and Hebrews, describes to us what Abram did when he came home from battle and interacted with Melchizedek. We're told that he took a tenth, 10% of the spoils of war and gave them to Melchizedek. It's not something that we're being prescribed to do necessarily. Now, that's not to say that Abram may have not been following some type of law or some type of custom of that time. We know in Genesis chapter 26, right? we're we're studying a time before God's law is given in written form. But in Genesis chapter 26 verse 5, it says... Um, this is God talking to Isaac and he says, I'm going to do these things for you, Isaac. Why? Because Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. Okay, so we know that Abram is working off of some concept of God's laws and statutes and and instructions and commandments. What all he's operating off of, we don't know. Moses doesn't choose to tell us how much special revelation Abram had about God's law. But we do know that he's operating off of obedience to commands that have been revealed to him. So this may be a customary thing that he's following. We're not given insight into what compels Abram to give the 10% of these spoils. But what we do know is we kind of delve into this a little bit and really consider what's going on here and why it doesn't necessarily give us a good prescription for how we operate is if we really consider the context here, Abram is tithing off of items that he doesn't even keep for himself, right? Hebrews 7, lest we we get confused into thinking that he's giving Melchizedek 10% of everything that he owns, because I did have one commentator that tried to suggest that, but in Hebrews chapter 7, it says in verse 4, see how great this man was to whom Abram the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Okay? This is Abram, Coming back with the spoils of war, okay, stuff that he doesn't keep. Well, let's think about it even further. It's stuff that doesn't belong to him to begin with, right? So if we're trying to build a a strong case for tithing here, then we would have to go so far as to say we're supposed to tithe off of other people's possessions, right? Because that's really what's happening here in the context. Abram comes home with other people's stuff, says, Melchizedek, here's 10% for you. He says, I want everybody that went with me to get a portion of it. And then king of Sodom, you can have what's left. So in reality, he gives maybe 80% plus back to the king of Sodom. Um, so if we really look at the context, it doesn't give us great prescription for us because the money and the, the spoils that we're talking about here are things that Abram gained that he didn't even keep for himself. So it's not that he gave 10% to Melchizedek and then kept the rest. He gave all of it away. Okay. Um, the point in Hebrews, when Hebrews even brings up the concept of him tithing, it's to show that the Levitical priests were tithing through Abram. Okay, so honestly, if if we really wanted to go further with it, we could say this is a message to the leadership of the church to make sure that they're tithing, because it was a, a picture that the Levitical priesthood was tithing to Melchizedek through Abram. So if anything's being called upon there, it's that the the the, uh, the priest or the the leadership should be faithful to give. Uh, but again, I don't think that's the major point there. I think the point is that Melchizedek was seen as a superior priest, in that Abram gave to him. This is also um, not a regular offering that Abram in any way uh, is is presented as giving. So it's not a. An ongoing thing. It's not that he continued to recur- return to Melchizedek weekly and to give him ten percent of what he had gained that week. There's also another helpful passage in Numbers 31. And I thought it was I was I thought it was funny. One commentator said that this passage in Genesis gets gets brought up a lot by preachers as to why we should give ten percent. Uh, but Numbers 31 is not a passage that probably ever gets brought up in the context of church giving. In Numbers 31, verse 25, another battle. So very same context or real similar context. There's a battle. Israel has defeated Midian. They've come back with spoils. And look what God specifically says. So thinking back to Genesis, God never even tells Abram to give, right? This is just something that Abram, out of his own compulsion, decides to give, okay? But in Numbers 31, there are specifics given, In Numbers 31, verse 25, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Take the count of the plunder that was taken, both of man and of beast. You and Eleazar the priest and the heads of the fathers' houses of the congregation. Divide the plunder into two parts, between the warriors who went out to battle and all the congregation. So take the total and split it into two. And levy for the Lord a tribute from the men of war who went out to battle, one out of 500 of the people and of the oxen and of the donkeys and of the flocks. So one five hundredth out of the, the soldiers' spoil was to go back to God. Verse 29, take it from their half and give it to Eleazar the priest as a contribution to the Lord. And from the people of Israel's half you shall take one drawn out of every fifty of the people, of the oxen, of the donkeys, of the flocks, of the cattle, and give them to the Levites who kept guard over the tabernacle of the Lord. And Moses and Eleazar the priest did as the Lord commanded Moses. Uh, it's estimated that if you kind of evaluate what was actually given back to God, it was close to 1.1% from this spoil of war that was given back to the leadership of, of the, the spiritual component of Israel there. Again, that passage never gets brought up when we're talking about giving in the church, right? Like that would that would cripple church budgets. But it's a very similar situation. We've come back with stuff that was not originally ours. Okay, It's now ours. God has given this into our hands. We're going to divvy it up, but let's give some back as a, as a tribute to those that continue to watch over us spiritually in the tabernacle as a tribute to the Lord. All right. So again, I don't think that this is a great passage to build a case for how much we're to give in the New Testament context. Um, some other initial thoughts. Uh, it seems that pre-law tithing or pre-law giving... Uh, was an expression of worship and gratitude for all that God had done or was going to do. Okay, so Abram seems to respond to the great victory that God has given him. Melchizedek comes out and draws attention to that fact, and it seems to just be a a, a compelling response from Abram, let me give as an acknowledgement that it's God who has won this victory. Okay, Jacob makes a similar expression in... Genesis chapter 28, verse 18. Genesis chapter 28, verse 18. God's talking to Jacob. He gives him the vision um, with the ladder and is expressing to him what he plans to do for Jacob. Uh, verse 21, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a full tenth to you. so this is another expression of of one of God's people giving as an expression of worship for what God had done or what God was going to do. And I think in both contexts, it's it's a fulfillment of what's going on in Deuteronomy chapter eight, where God commands his people to constantly remember their source of provision. It says in Deuteronomy eight, verse 11, take care lest you forget the Lord your God. "...by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied... You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. There's warning here that with great wealth comes great responsibility not to forget where that wealth comes from. And I think Abram and Jacob both are acknowledging that as God blesses, their intent is to give back as an expression of where that wealth has come from. Okay. Um, I think it's also important to remember in the Old Testament, um, as you go back and look at some of the things that were being given and when they were being given, that a lot of that, and we've talked about this before, a lot of that was mandated. And it was very similar to the percentages that we see ourselves giving to our government in the form of taxes okay so you you can't separate the fact that the law was given in the context of a nation that was functioning as its own people okay we as the church function within a nation okay Um, And so it's helpful to to remember as we study the Old Testament and see some of the things that they were giving, how often they were giving, how much they were giving, that a lot of that mirrors very closely to the percentages that we give to our government in the form of taxes, okay? Um, Meaning that Israel was giving more than 10% when they were giving, that they were giving closer to 30% of what they possessed um, throughout the year. Um, Okay. So next point here, because there is no mandated amount to give, and we've shared that before here, I don't think that scripture reveals a mandated amount that the church is supposed to give. Because there is no mandated amount to give, we must responsibly evaluate our time, our talents, and our resources regularly to ensure we are faithfully stewarding God's gifts for his glory. Okay? Okay. Because I don't believe there's a mandated amount to give. What I do see in the New Testament is that we are to give. That the model of the early church is that the church gave. They gave to meet needs. But, but we don't see the apostles mandating a certain amount to give. In fact, when people are giving a certain amount, they almost imply that there was not a certain amount they were supposed to give. Right? In the, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, they sell their property. They give Uh, a portion of it but claim that they've given all of it and uh peter says you didn't have to do this you didn't have to lie about it you could have just given however much you wanted to and we'll look at that passage here in just a little bit but because there's no mandated amount to give we must responsibly evaluate our time talents and resources regularly to ensure we are faithfully stewarding god's gifts for his glory see if this was easy then we could have taught this in 2011 I could have told you exactly how much of your income you're supposed to be giving to Sovereign Hope. And then simply today, when we come across this passage in Genesis, I could simply remind you, hey, the number is this. Everybody go home and check your accounts and make sure that you're giving that much. And if you're not, get that worked out. OK, it's not that simple. OK, it's not that simple. And we're going to see some, uh, some of the reasons for that and some of the things that that then dictate to us how much we do give if there's not a mandated amount. But because there's not a mandated amount, we have to responsibly evaluate our time, our talents, our resources regularly to make sure that we're being good stewards. So you could have been a good steward in 2011 when we talked about this, but for probably just about all of us, our income has increased since 2011, right? And so what we're doing today may not communicate good stewardship in the same way that it did in 2011. That's where we have to pause step back and say okay is covetousness reigning in my life or am i still demonstrating to both my family to myself to others that christ is my treasure not the things of this world okay we have to evaluate ourselves regularly to make sure we're doing this in a god-honoring way uh second corinthians chapter nine is a helpful passage for this second corinthians chapter nine um okay the concept there that we give cheerfully we give uh based on God's grace um we give not because we're told to give but because in our own outworking of salvation in our heart we're compelled to give okay in acts chapter 5 i believe this is the passage that i was referencing see here yeah acts chapter 5 verse 4 um, peter's talking to to them about the the fact that they owned the land it said Verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Peter says, lest you think that God was demanding anything from you regarding this land, it was yours. You bought it at some point and you possessed this land before you ever sold it. You could have just kept hanging on to it. You'll remember at this time in the early church, a lot of people were selling their stuff and giving it to the church so that people's needs could be met. Ananias and Sapphira want to get on this train, and I think they want to present themselves in a prideful way. Here's what we've made off our land. We're giving all of it to the church. Look at what we've done. Look at the sacrifice we've made, and they've kept a portion back. And Peter's saying, you could have just given us a portion of it. You didn't have to give us any of it. You could have just sold it and put it in your account. There was no mandate upon your life that you had to give anything to the church in this context. He said, wasn't it yours? Wasn't it at your disposal? You didn't have to concoct this plan. You didn't have to concoct this plan to keep some for yourself. Nobody was begging you for this money. Nobody was begging you to sell your land for this. I think that that what we see in the New Testament is that mindless giving on a Sunday morning is not the goal right? It's not, here's how much you're supposed to give, write your check each Sunday, and in, and if the budget starts to dip, that's when we'll talk about it again kind of thing. Because as we're going to see at the end, this is not coming up because of anything regarding our budget. All right, we're going to celebrate at the end your faithful giving. So this comes up because of where we're at in Genesis, not because we're in some type of financial crisis. So lest you think that this is building to a big give 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 because we're about to get booted from our building that's not the case okay we're stepping back and saying hey we're giving but let's make sure that everybody is giving what they have worked out in their heart with the holy spirit to give as a means of sanctification not as a means of increasing our storehouses okay because we don't really have storehouses um um all right let's see here um I will say, okay, so a lot of people want to build a case that 10% in the Old Testament was what, what was mandated. I think when you go back and you remove yourself from the, the specific amounts that I think, again, were tied to some of the taxation of that nation, what you do find a lot of times is give cheerfully type of mandates from God. Give, give, not set amounts, but just give. But let's just say that the, the, the mandate was 10%. Let's say that there's a great case in the Old Testament that Israel was giving 10%. What we do find in the New Testament is that Jesus always seems to elevate the understanding of the Old Testament law to a higher standard, right? He tells the people, you think that the Old Testament says don't commit adultery. And so if you've never physically done anything with another person, then you're fine. But if you've, if you've had lustful thoughts, then you're guilty. You you think that if you've never taken somebody's life that you're not guilty of murder, but if you've hated somebody, then you're guilty of murder. So if anything, if we want to talk numbers, if anything, I would expect that the the expectation and standard would be higher than any concept and understanding of the Old Testament pattern of giving, because that seems to be the case for all other aspects of the law in the New Testament. Do it do it do it to a greater standard than what it had been lowered to in the Old Testament. Okay? So, 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 I say that to say, I don't think that less than ten percent is something that we would cling to and say, "Hey, we don't have to give ten percent; we can actually give less in the New Testament. It never seems to be a less in the New Testament type of understanding when it comes to what God desires, okay um, let's get into some benefits of giving, and then, like I said, I wanna end today with some discussion and some application questions to get you thinking. As a means of pausing and stepping back and evaluating your own financial situation. Some benefits of giving. First of all, let's talk about what giving is. When we're talking about giving today, what we mean is identifying needs and giving what we have. Selling at times so we can give. So maybe there's situations where there's a need that needs to be met, but you don't have anything more to give But it means liquidating some assets to therefore free up money to give. There's times in scripture where we're called to give. There's times in scripture where people were called to sell to give. But then there's also times in scripture we're going to see where we're told to share what we already have. Not that we fully give it up, but we share uh, in a way to where maybe somebody else doesn't have to make a purchase. They don't have to, to create an expenditure there. They can simply benefit from what God has already given us. Okay, so there's different contexts for what we even mean by giving. Giving what we already have, selling so we can give, or sharing what we already have. Um, And a lot of times getting that back. But but extending that as a a sign of hospitality so that someone else doesn't have to to spend potentially. Giving what we have. Let's look at some passages real quick that relate to this. In James chapter 2. Verse fourteen. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, "Go in peace, be warmed and filled," without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. First John chapter three. Verse sixteen. It says. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods, sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Okay, so these are examples of of believers being called to give. Selling what we have to give. Luke chapter 12, verse 33 through 34. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. At times, rather than giving cash, uh, we're called to sell possessions uh, to create money that can be given to the needy, instead of just pulling from our own bank account. Uh, In Acts chapter 2, again, that early church example of People selling in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and all came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Uh, same concept in Acts chapter four, verse 32. Um Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great peace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and it laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means sons of son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is right before the Ananias and Sapphira story, right? So this is an example of people who were not being told to do this, but were, were being compelled to do it. They they had been uh, responsive to the gospel. They saw believers around them that were in need, so they're selling things. They're giving the money to the church. Ananias and Sapphira are a part of this, but not really, because the, the work hasn't changed their heart, but they want to be a part of it in some sense. It's not really under compulsion of the Holy Spirit. It's more, we want to live up to the standard that everybody else is setting, so let's sell our stuff, but we don't want to really give it all up like Barnabas. We'll keep some back, okay? But the example being set was people selling so that they could give, but then we're also called at times to share what we already have. In Romans chapter 12, verse 13, we're reminded of the importance of hospitality. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 15 and 16. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. 1 Peter 4, 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I'd venture to say most everybody in here has something that's worth sharing with someone else. If not, ask around and we can let you know the things that we want to borrow from you, right? Um, We all possess things that can be used as a means of service to others. Um, And some of you do that very faithfully. Some of you demonstrate hospitality to the uttermost. And and you're an example and a... a, Uh, an expression of of God's grace in the fact that you are submitted to the Holy Spirit and you're that type of individual in our church that demonstrates that type of hospitality. Um, This is the precedent. This is the norm that was being established here early on in the church. Let's look at some benefits of giving as we work through some of the New Testament here. Uh, Number one, giving serves as an antidote for covetousness. Giving serves as an antidote for covetousness. We give to protect ourselves from giving ourselves over to this type of of mindset. In Luke chapter 12, verse 15. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Colossians chapter three, verse five so Jesus tells us there to be on guard against covetousness. Colossians 3: five put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. Hebrews 13 five. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have for He has said, "I will never leave you, nor forsake you. Giving forces us to deal with the desire for what we would have bought with that money had we not given it. Think about that when we give when we give and, and perhaps you're you're further along in your sanctification than me, but when I give, oftentimes I think about what I am potentially giving up in that gift. When I give to to Sovereign Hope, when I give to others outside this context, it's not uncommon for fleshly thoughts to run through my mind, here's what I'm not purchasing, here's what I'm not purchasing in order to give. And maybe some of that is sanctification in that God is allowing me to, to, to overcome those thoughts of what I could purchase. But it's how, we, it's how we fight against covetousness. By giving, what we are essentially doing is not buying or saving that money. We could have bought something else with it. We could have bought some type of, of, of luxurious item because more than likely, we didn't need the money, right? Most of us are not in a situation right now where we are giving and thus giving up needs on our end, right? Nobody's going without a meal to give right now. Maybe, maybe you are. So I'm not going to presumptuously say that nobody is. But most of us are not giving up things that we have to have physically in order to give to others. Most of us are giving. And by giving, it means that we're not purchasing things that we don't need. Or we're not saving money that we don't have to have. And so we're fighting covetousness. We're not giving up things that we need. We're giving up things that we don't need. Things that would cause us to cling to this earth and keep our minds off of heavenly things. So it's a good act. It's a good sanctifying act at times to give our money away because it protects us from the things that we would have bought, that would have anchored us deeper and deeper into this world that's passing away. Okay, so giving serves as an antidote for covetousness. It keeps us from purchasing things that ultimately are things that we don't need. Secondly, regularly evaluating our giving protects us from ever-expanding spending, You've probably noted for those that are in situations where your, your income does increase maybe yearly with raises that oftentimes your lifestyle, your spending, simply fills in with the increase of your income. Right? You, you're, you're making more, so now I can afford to do more, so I'm going to spend more. Regularly evaluating our giving protects us from ever-expanding spending. I was reading and studying about some that that have uh, capped their their spending in life. They've said, "Okay, I'm not going to live above this amount. I've I've reached a point where where I can I can have my needs met through this dollar amount, and so money that comes in beyond this is just money I give away. I don't keep a portion of it. I don't I don't give a portion away. I I live under these means, and anything over that I just give away because I don't need it." Um, There are plenty of examples of people that that live that way. They protect themselves from ever-expanding spending. Proverbs 30. Verse 7 through 9, a passage that we looked at back in 2011. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. The author here is communicating that he doesn't want too much because he's afraid that he'll abuse the too much and he doesn't want too little because he doesn't want it to reflect poorly on God's lack of provision in his life. God, give me exactly what I need. Don't give me too much. Don't give me too little. Give me exactly what I need. You know what I need. Give me exactly those things. We want our lives to look different than those around us. We need to restrain ourselves from appearing to have the same values as the world. It's important to remember here that, because I know the temptation is, is that when money, when our income increases, we now think, okay, now I can afford the things that I really have been wanting and needing. I think it's it's helpful to pause and, and remind ourselves that we already possess the very items that many wish they could buy. Think about that just for a second the, the spiritual blessings that we inherit through salvation are the very things that most, if you were to survey and poll it 's the type of things that people wish they could purchase. Hey, if I could, I could and I would pay exorbitant amounts of money for these things. Think about what people would pay. Think about people what people have tried to pay in the past, forgiveness of sins. There were people in the middle ages that were making a living off of selling pieces of paper that said your sins were forgiven. People were lining up to pay money. So that someone would exonerate them from their sins. Name the price so I can get the piece of paper that says I've been forgiven. It's something that we can't purchase. It's something that as Christians we already possess. Forgiveness of sins. Perfect righteousness. To know that we've been accepted in the eyes of God. Is, is, is a, a thing that many would pay large amounts of money to have guaranteed in their life. Access to God. Life events that turn out good, right? How many people, what what kind of profit do you think you could make if you could sell something that guaranteed that everything in your life turned out for good? I've got to imagine that if that came before the Shark Tank people, that they would definitely invest in a product that guaranteed that everything in your life turns out for good. Think about that. Think about what, what type of price tag that would demand. If you had a product that guaranteed it. And what we fail to realize is that we possess. We possess that very thing. We possess the very thing. The promise in scripture that guarantees us. Not that only good things happen to Christians. And I was clarifying this for our students in our spiritual emphasis week this week. The Bible doesn't promise that only good things happen to Christians. Right? That's prosperity gospel. That if you come to Jesus, only good things happen. What scripture promises is that everything that happens happens becomes good and there's there's a big difference there it's subtle in how it's explained but it's huge it's huge in the realization of what that means it's not a promise that only good things happen because we could all sit here till next week and testify of bad things that have happened in our life it is a promise it is an assurance that everything in our life turns out for good and that's something that you couldn't probably put a price tag on if you could sell something like that and the fact that it's free causes people to dismiss it. It's something that we possess as Christians. The removal of worry and anxiety. Think about the, the the dollars that are spent to try to remove anxiety and worry in one's life. And yet what scripture teaches us is that we're to not be anxious for things. We're to be prayerful. Prayerful to a high priest that we learned about last week that is constantly interceding for us. The Holy Spirit who intercedes in ways when we don't know what to even pray for ourselves. The removal of anxiety and worry in a believer's life. Things that we possess, whether our income goes up or down. Resurrection and eternal life. Many an explorer has went searching for the fountain of youth to find some way to preserve their life. To give them an eternal nature. We possess that as believers. We possess the promise that we are coming back to life one day, even those that die before Jesus comes back. We have eternity waiting for us. Things that, that are the most luxurious things that, that most of us, our income would never even approach the ability to purchase these type of things. We already possess as believers. Regularly evaluating our giving protects us from ever-expanding spending. Number three, giving increases our capacity for good works. Giving increases our capacity for good works. Go back to Second Corinthians chapter 9. We see this perspective here that, that giving increases our ability to do good. Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Sowing and reaping. Each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. The connection here for Paul is that by giving, it increases our capacity to perform good works. Our excessive money is provided to us to increase our good deeds. Treasures on earth do not communicate that our father in heaven is glorious. If our excess of money is being used to build up our treasures here, it doesn't communicate to others that we believe heaven is more glorious than this earth. We look like we love what everyone else loves. Titus 2.13 tells us that we're to be zealous for good deeds, right? That, That God is creating a people that are zealous for good works. And if you connect the fact that giving increases our capacity for good works, then you tie those two passages together, and it means that God is wanting to create people that are zealous about giving, right? Zealous for good works, giving increases our capacity for good works. The call for us to use our excessive money strategically. 1 Timothy 6 tells us that we're to be rich in good works. So if you tie all these passages together, the only way to be rich in good works is to be less rich financially. Because Paul says giving of your finances increases your good works. So if I want to be rich in good works, then I've got to increase what I'm giving to increase my capacity for good, right? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 19 see you stop right there and you should say hey I should be real careful every time my boss wants to increase my salary why because some people have wandered away from the faith because of their riches it should cause us pause to say hey my income's going up this year which means from scripture the possibility of me wandering from the faith has increased as well what am i going to strategically do with the increase of finances that i'm experiencing If I'm supposed to be rich in good works. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you are called about. In which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. And of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate. Made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, If anyone's to do good in the church, it's those that have the the increase in the finances. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. A lot of good truths there. A lot of good truths about the dangers of riches and how we're to use them for God's glory. Number four. Giving reminds us that God is our source of provision and shows we trust in his promises. Hebrews thirteen fourteen, we're to be content. He'll never leave us, he'll never forsake us. Philippians four nineteen. Paul reminds the church that's given to him My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We're called to share our hope. Is anyone asking you to defend your hope? Remember in 1 Peter 3.15, we're called to always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that's in us. Which implies that we're living in such a way that people would want to have us defend our hope in us. It was cool. I was talking to a guy that um, regularly comes in and sees me at McDonald's and he's a believer. He's an older gentleman that Uh, was going to a church not too far from here in Brooks, and I think now he's a part of a church plant in a house. Um, He'd asked me to pray for his son uh, not too long ago that had kind of left home about 40 years old, and um, so I was asking him about his son, and his wife had actually been up in Minnesota taking care of either her dad or her mom, and they'd been separated for like 14 months. I mean, she'd been up there providing care, and so he would, a lot of times he'd come into McDonald's and be on the phone with her and talking to her, and um, so I asked her, asked him about that. And he said, we've been reunited. She's come home and, and she's back with me. And he said, um, he said, I was actually driving home with her. He said, we have a new car. So I didn't think anything of it. He said, I know how to fix cars, but I didn't take anything with me because the car is relatively new. We're driving back from Minnesota. Car breaks down. And he said, I was just really frustrated and, and just really upset over how much money I was having to give the mechanic for it. And he said, uh, it's only by God's grace, he said, because my attitude was really stinky that day. He's like, I was just not where I was supposed to be. And he said that the guy struck up a conversation with him, and he said, um, he said, I've got to ask. He said, you're obviously from out of town. You're traveling. Your Your car's broke down. You seem to be handling this really, really well. He said, I'm astonished. At how well you're handling this and he's thinking like if you only knew like you know what's inside of me and and the guy said I, I i'm i'm assuming you're some type of religious guy based on how you're handling this situation and so he proceeded to tell him um i wouldn't classify myself as religious but but i do know jesus and and uh began to share the gospel with him and um you know he's telling me there in mcdonald's he said i led the guy to the lord he said um through through a situation like that he asked me about the hope that was in me and i was able to express that to him and led him to jesus christ and so You know, we were celebrating that together, and uh, it's a reminder to me that, that how we handle our finances should reveal to others where our hope really is, and it should do so in a way that causes people to ask us about that. Where is your hope? I noticed something different about you. Explain that to me. Number five, giving serves as an outward demonstration of the heart change within. Giving serves as an outward demonstration of the heart change within. You see the two stories in scripture where you have the um, the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and turns down his offer because he doesn't want to sell his possessions. And then right after that in scripture, you have Zacchaeus who has taken from people and increased his riches, responds, doesn't even have to be asked to give up his stuff, right? Jesus is asking the rich young ruler, sell everything, give it away, come follow me. No, I'm not doing that. Zacchaeus says yes to Jesus and says, I'm going to sell everything and give it away. And I'm going to repay people that I've stolen from. And I'm going to repay them more than I stole from them. And Jesus didn't, to our knowledge, even have to ask him for those things. It's a, it's a demonstration of what's happened on the inside when we're faithful to give. A decision must be made concerning whether we will serve God or money. We can't serve both, right? Matthew 6 24, 1 John 2 15 both highlight that. We can't serve both. So we have to make a decision. Who do we serve? Meaning that how we use money will determine what decision we've made. Okay, so it's presented in Scripture. You have to decide, are you going to serve God or money? How do we know which decision we've made? How we use our money. Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16 verse 19 says, This is the parable, so we won't read through all this because it's rather lengthy, but this is the rich man and Lazarus, okay? This is an example of an individual who had the world's riches, saw someone in need, and chose not to extend help to that individual. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church? He's tying the fact that that greed and the love of money uh, oftentimes should be tied to church discipline. Either we're not to associate with people that are dominated by money. Um, we've already highlighted James two and first John three, the call for believers to give to, to serve, to love those around them with their finances. We work to serve others, not our selfish desires, right? Scripture calls us to work in such a way so that we can take care of each other. In John chapter six, verse 27, do not work for food that perishes, But for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you for on him, God, the father has set his seal. Right. Working with a different perspective, not for food that perishes here, but for the food that's to come in Acts, chapter 20, verse thirty five. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said is more blessed to give than to receive. Ephesians 4.28, we work in such a way to help others to to give money away. Ephesians 4.28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Not just working for self, but working for the The concept of sharing with others. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Working with a different perspective. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. All these remind us that we don't work just for ourselves and our selfish desires and the things that we want. We work in such a way to share and to give to those around us. I put in my notes, there won't be many selfish people in heaven. That seems to be the indication from Scripture, right? That that selfish people aren't included in God's people, right? We have example after example, the rich young ruler Rich man and Lazarus, the goats of Matthew 25, right? The goats and sheep are separated based on their love and service to other people. You've got a selfish group and a a self-sacrificing group. Number six, giving allows us to participate in the expansion of God's kingdom. Giving allows us to participate in the expansion of God's kingdom. We talked back in 2011 about different ways or different people that we're to support with our money through the local church. Um, we're called to give to support those who labor for the gospel, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 3, um, Paul says, This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not specific, certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, it is, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the rightful claim on you, do not we even more? So Paul's building this case that those who labor for the gospel should be supported by other Christians. First um, Timothy 5, 17 through 18. Unless you think I'm building to some concept of you supporting me that's that's not where we're going with this either okay um first timothy 5 17 through 18 let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching although that verse sounds like that's where we're going that's not where we're going okay we're just saying that through god's word we are called to take care of those who labor for the gospel romans fifteen twenty four. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while. You remember when we went through Romans, Paul was talking about the fact that he needed some financial support from this church. And so he was anticipating receiving that. Titus 3.13. Do your best to spend Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. These are two individuals that are gospel-saturated, that want to see the gospel go forth. He says, make sure they're taken care of. Make sure they have what they need to accomplish what God has called them to. Um, we're called to give support to those around us. Okay, So not only do we give to those who labor with the gospel, we give to those who are around us that have need. Um, so the precedent in the early church is that they were collecting money to give to God gospel laborers, but then they were also collecting money to help those who were around them that were in need. Uh Acts four, we talked about they were selling their possessions, collecting money so they could give to people in the church that had needs. Uh first Timothy chapter five, the same idea there. Um first Timothy chapter five, it's all about taking care of widows and who should be in the program for being helped, um, how they should go about receiving that help, how long they should receive that help. Um, so it's 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 a concept where the early church was collecting money a lot of times primarily not for programs and and buildings, but for the care of those around them and for sending out people that were laboring for the gospel um, which which kind of leads us now to where we're, where we're going with this Some of us some of us need to sell everything and and, and go and, and we've been talking about this in the concept of where we 're going with Uganda some people in our church are going to answer the call and say, you know what? I want to be a part of that team that's going and I'm going to sell my possessions and, and in a sense, give, give the money from those possessions to the gospel because I'm going, I'm going to move to Uganda. I'm going to, I'm going to go and serve there for the foreseeable future. I'm selling everything and I'm going. Others of us need to earn money to support those that are going. All right. And so, to kind of tie everything in together, um, Ben and I were going through our finances yesterday because we're at a point now, we met with some people last week about Uganda, those that are, that are still in the process of praying through this. Okay, so our plan is to take a trip in February for those that, that foreseeably are, are really praying about going in September when Chris moves. Um, for the people that are going to potentially take a trip in February with, with hopes of answering some questions, are we going or are we staying kind of thing. Okay, so, so that puts it on us as a church to really ramp up our understanding of our finances and where we are as a church and what we can actually support and how many people we could actually send. Okay? Um, so I want to kind of give you an update on, on where we're at. You'll remember last year that we took everything that we had saved and basically put it into Save Hope International. So we created a bank account um, and we put money into that and we wanted to continue to add to that on a yearly basis. So basically whatever we save just rolls into that account. So whatever we don't use for member care, so we we basically have a savings account during the year, we keep dumping money into a member care account. So if anybody were to lose their job or or had some great need that came up, we would pull from that. We get to the end of the year, instead of just allowing that money to continue to increase, we roll that money into Hope International. That becomes kind of a permanent saving place and now we start back over with a small balance in our member care. I think we started with, you said, 4000 maybe, okay? So at the beginning of the year, we started with 4000 We build that up. At the end of the year, we say, okay, we don't need all this money. Put it in South Hope International. We'll start next year with about $4,000, realizing that we'll keep adding to it. So even if somebody lost their job in January, we could start giving them money, realizing that it's going to replenish itself, Okay. Um, so, talking with Ben yesterday, we started the year with four thousand dollars in our member care right now um, we 're just over eleven thousand dollars okay so we've we 've saved seven thousand dollars this year money that could have been spent on any number of things that we 've just been really frugal and putting away in case any of you guys had a need. We also restructured how we were doing. Uh, leadership support within the church, okay? So previously, there was a percentage that I received as the as the lead pastor uh, that helped our financial income at home uh, for me and Lauren. We reworked that with the deacons. We capped that so that it would not continue to increase, okay, so that it wouldn't allow my family to just increase our spending. So we capped it, okay? And we basically distributed it to where whoever preaches on a Sunday gets paid a certain amount, okay? So that helped Somebody like Tyson out during the summer who filled in for me a couple of weeks, we paid him to teach, okay, so we see in scripture a pattern you pay the elders that are labor laboring to teach okay so if i 'm not laboring to teach for a week, then then we 're not paying me to teach for that week, so we 're not paying me we 're paying whoever taught that week okay um, any money that would have normally gone to me or someone else in the church leadership, we rolled into another account. Okay, so there's a thousand, a little over a thousand dollars in that account. Um, and then in our operations account, we have saved a little over four thousand dollars. Okay, so based on mine and Ben's estimations, we have saved almost thirteen thousand dollars this year. Okay, um. That rolls into Soft Hope International at the end of the year, on top of the eleven thousand that's already sitting there. Okay, so that goes to about twenty-five thousand, something like that. Um, I think Melissa gave me some preliminary numbers. She thinks probably a safe estimation would be five to eight thousand dollars per person per year over there in Uganda. Um, which isn't which isn't a ton of money if you're thinking about that from a monthly standpoint. Um, so that's let's go on the high end. So eight thousand divided by twelve, about six hundred, almost seven hundred dollars a month. That seem fair, Chris. That too high, way too high, way too low, right there. Less. Okay, so we're on we're probably on the high end there. Okay, so if you consider where we're at right now about 25, maybe we save a little bit more over the next couple of months before December hits. Let's say we save another, let's say nothing changes, we keep giving, we we save another, what did I say, 12 for next year. So we're looking at uh, 25, 12. I don't know if she included that or not. Um, Okay, so that's 37,000 which has been saved up over the course of several years. Okay, so it's not that we're saving that money every year. We'd like to send, you know, in discussion with elders and with Chris, we think three to four people is what's needed right now, okay? So three to four people on the high end, if we're sending four, that's about $32,000 per year, okay? Um, So we're going to have a good chunk there saved up, okay? But what we've got to start thinking through is when we send people – we are necessarily sending some people that we're giving. Okay, they're no longer here to give. So, so some of that's going to have to be replaced. Um, but what I want us to start thinking through, uh, and what I want to call you to do in your own personal evaluation, is are we giving everything that we can for this cause? Now, like I said, what you have been giving is is unfathomable to leadership every time we get together and talk about it. We don't know where the money's coming from. Um, but when I, when I evaluate some of my own financial situation and some of the questions that I want to share with you, um, it makes me wonder, can we, because I think we can, can we get to the point where we can really confidently tell three to four people, sell everything, because we're ready to send you in September. And we're confident that we can support you moving forward. Okay, so some questions to kind of think through to help us with this. Is there anything that you cannot afford right now because as a Christ follower, your money is being spent elsewhere? Okay, these people in Scripture that were supporting the laborers of the gospel, the implication was that they were having to sacrifice some things in order to provide for those needs. Okay, so we're presenting a need here. Again, we are, we are, we are in excess, as far as what we need to run our operation here on a weekly basis, right? Like we're, we're saving thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars that you're giving. And if we weren't doing this, we would probably have to come to you and say, where do y'all want this money to go? Because we're not going to keep it. We don't have anything else to spend it on, right? Thankfully, God has put a good, put a, a vision upon us and provided someone like Chris that can help carry out this vision that we've got somewhere to put this excess money. Um, but in order to really send three to four people long-term, because I think we can build up enough to where we can say, hey, we got you for a year, but we would be short the next year on being able to keep them there At, at where we're at right now. Um, is there anything that you can't afford right now because as a Christ follower, your money is being spent elsewhere? And you may have a hard time coming up with something. You may have a hard time. I mean, beyond like, well, yeah, I don't take month-long vacations and you know, we only take one cruise a year. Like, You may have a hard time coming up with stuff that you aren't doing like me like as i was sitting there yesterday kind of thinking through it and this is where i was getting convicted again it's i don't know that i could make a long list of stuff that i don't get to spend my money on because it's going somewhere else are there any sacrifices that i'm making because if i could make that sacrifice then that increases the available money to send to uganda with these people is there anything that you can't afford because as a christ follower your money is being spent elsewhere what criteria are you currently using to determine how much money you give away? See, some of us may be still operating off the same criteria we used in 2011. And every year when we say commit to give, because we do that every year, right? Because we don't just say, hey, give 10%. Every year we ask you as members, tell us what you plan to give this year. Let's make sure we're not using the same criteria as we were in 2011. Because like I said, most of us, our, our giving is increased. Or our, our, our uh, income is increased. Probably for a lot of us, our spending is increased. We need to make sure that our giving is increasing. Again, not so that anybody here can benefit from it. We are not asking for anybody to give more than what they're currently giving so that anybody profits here on U.S. soil. For people that are leaving this soil. Okay? Um, Would people call what I do with my money being generous? Okay, so if somebody from outside somebody who's not a believer was given access to your account and they could see expenditures all through the month. Would it, they didn't know who you were. They just were handed a bank account. Here's the expenditures. Would there be anything that made them say, what is going on here? Or would it look like anybody else's bank account? Are, are, Are things that are being bought any different than from what a lost believer's bank account would look like? Would people call what I do with my money being generous? Or would it be minimal? How am I guarding against covetousness? You know, Jesus says, guard against this. Make sure that you're mindful. You know, I, I don't know that I've ever met anybody that that was concerned about a raise. Right? Nobody said, hey, now there's more opportunity for covetousness in my life. Right? Most of us say, why wasn't it more? Like I was expecting more this year. Hardly anybody says, whoa, that's going to be concerning. That's going to cause a temptation, right? Nobody looks at their their increase and says, we've got a problem here, right? No, none of us do that. How are we guarding against covetousness? How do we make sure that we're not trying to send people to Uganda and failing to do so because we're, we're coveting things that keeps our money in our account versus going to someone else's? Do I enjoy any luxuries in my life that have now become needs for me? Okay, so we talked about selling things. For some of us, it may mean canceling things. But for some of us, we cringe at that idea because it's become more of a need now than a luxury. There's a lot of us that have luxuries in life that we enjoy that we almost now define as needs. Like, "I I gotta have this. Our family has to have this. Do I enjoy any luxuries in my life that have now become needs for me. Lastly, oh man. Lastly, this quote by uh, C.S. Lewis. If our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our expenditure on charities excludes them. Yeah, I want us to get to the point. For, for I think for us to really do this, like it can't be... There is no way possible that our church can send four people to Uganda for three years and support them and us not give up anything. Like, like we, we don't make enough money, I don't believe, for us to be able to send four people to Uganda and say, we will cover your expenses. And I, and I think we should be able to do that. We should, we should. That is not a, a concept that we should say, well, well, normally churches go through mission boards and stuff. And, and they find the support that way. I don't think it's far-fetched for us to say that we should be able to send four people to another country. And support them so that they don't have to worry about raising the finances. They don't have to worry about losing support from other churches. They know that everything's in one church that loves them dearly, that knows them, and will do everything necessary to keep them there and provide for them. It's not, that's not too far-fetched to think that we should be doing that, but I don't think we can do that if we continue to enjoy everything that we're currently enjoying with our money. I just don't think that, I don't think that, that God works that way. I don't think that sending missionaries works that way. I think there has to be cost on both ends because what we're talking about are three to four people that are leaving everything that they know, selling everything that they have, giving up birthdays and holidays and and family events. They're missing out on on people that they're close to growing up and and, and they're going to miss out on a lot. So they're sacrificing a lot on top of the fact that they're going to sell everything and probably put it towards the project as well for us to just say, well, I can just Keep giving on par, and we'll be able to support them. I don't think it works that way. I think we, I think we have to look at it to the point where we say, "There are things that I'd like to be doing that I'm no longer doing, or I can't do, because what I what I give away keeps me from doing those things." And hopefully, it's a point where we're not grumbling about it, right? That that we're doing it joyfully. I was, I was thinking this morning, this, this isn't like hard numbers or anything but i was thinking this morning and i stopped at 20 and it it was it's 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 around 20 counting at 20 when i got to 20 there there are at least 20 people slash families in this church that are that are making um like like uh like real income meaning like you're in a job where like you you could be in that job for a while like you're not like in a a job that you're looking to, it's just a temporary type job. Right? There's there's at least 20 people in this church, families or individuals that are in like an adult big boy job. There's more than 20. There's more than t- I stopped at 20. Okay. There's more than 20, but th- there's definitely 20. Right? Like I know some some that are that are single in our church or, are working a job that they're not interested in working long term. Like they see it as a bridge to like wherever they're going. Okay. But there, there's at least 20. Represented people, families in, in, in our church, membership, and membership, I just counted membership, that are in a, a, a job situation that's a long-term answer for their family, okay? So thinking in terms of 20 people in our church, I got to thinking, you know, if, 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 what what number it would take from each one of those to, to make this happen. So if we're saving we're saving about on average twelve to fifteen a year as a church just with our on par giving right now, but if each one of those individuals slash families were able to contribute an additional thousand dollars per year, that would be an additional twenty, which would put us right around thirty two eight times four is thirty two right so thousand dollars per family slash individual that's working a big boy job um, for some of you, you say gosh that's that's not possible for for me. Like I'm I'm assuming he counted me in that group of twenty. He needs to not count me in that group of twenty because a thousand's not possible. Um, but if we think in terms of okay, it may not be that you can give an additional thousand dollars, but it may be that there are things that could be liquidated to create that, or it may be that I could work harder, pick up something extra that would allow me to generate a thousand dollars for the, for for a year, and again. We're going to build up a reserve to where we're basically paying out of an account that's there so that we basically have a year's worth already there. So that if we got to the end of the year and we say, hey, we don't have enough for the next year, you guys are going to have to come home, that it's not an immediate like, hey, we got to cut you off kind of thing, right? So it's not you need to give $1,000 next week kind of thing, but to think in terms of, okay, by next September, let's say next September, I'd like to come, I'd like to get real strategic with my finances. I'll, I'm going to cut some things that have are that currently being used to spend money on. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to cut some things. I'm going to sell some things. I'm going to pick up some extra shit, whatever it would take to come up with an extra thousand dollars over the next year. For some of us, that would really stretch us. For some of us, we could maybe write the check right now. Um, but if, but if. 20, 20 families, individual representatives took that upon themselves and did that every year, did that every year. Then where we're at currently, we, we could make this happen. We could make this happen. And so I want to challenge you with that today, with these questions that I shared with you. Are, are, are there things that 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 you're not able to do because of how you're sacrificially giving? Are there things that could be cut out that would create additional funds to give? We're asking three to four people to give up a ton to move there. We should expect that we're going to have to give up something as well to get them there. So I want you to be thinking about that. Um, Like I said, we we come upon this part here in Genesis where it it causes us to step back and pause and say, okay, let me think about my giving, not because... We're supposed to follow Abram's example here. But because Abram does respond and say, God has given me a great victory, I want to acknowledge that he's the source of that. For us to pause and step back and say, God has given me a great many things. For a lot of us, he's He's made us fairly rich when it comes to we have more than we need. We have more than we need. We promise that he takes care of our needs. Anything beyond that, we should we should certainly be standing up and rejoicing over. What could we potentially give over the course of this year? What could we potentially set aside? And to guard against your own covetousness, we have that account set up to where you can start giving to it. Now, it doesn't work. It doesn't work if you start allocating what you've been giving and start designating it for Cyphobe International, right? That that doesn't make the numbers work, right? Because we need the, the 12000 that comes out of everybody currently giving in addition to. So it's not... Hey, I'll just start writing my money to the Software International, and that'll be my thousand dollars. Okay, that doesn't make the numbers work. Um, but if we get real strategic and creative, either cut. For some of us, you may decide I don't want to cut anything out. Like I, I like some of the luxurious things that I enjoy. I'm, I'm going to just work a little bit harder. That's great. That's fine. Nobody's going to mandate how you do it. Nobody's going to mandate that you even have to do this at all. But I do want to cast some vision for you that this is how this happens. We keep giving like we've been given. And we're going to save money enough to, to start the process of sending people. But to sustain it, we're going to have to give more. And it's going to be money that is designated for that cause to support them. Um and, and, and we're supposed to do that in scripture. We support those that labor for the gospel. We're supposed to do that. We're supposed to sacrifice to do that. Um, so I want you to I want to encourage you over the next month, two months, as we get closer to our budget time. Um to start thinking through what, what could we do as a family, as an individual that has a has a has a as job that, that's paying well. What could I do to generate an extra $1,000 to make my contribution to this? Um, I want to appeal to you to, to think through that strategically. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to pause and to reflect, to step back, and uh, to hopefully, honestly... Consider our spending. Um, God, we know from Scripture that you talk a lot about it. You talk about it a lot more than you do hell. Um, and God, we're, we're reminded that uh, you, you sent Jesus to warn us about our tendencies to covet. And God, we do want to fight those tendencies. And so God, I pray that as we leave today that we would, each one of us, in our own time this week, pause and, and consider our giving habits and our spending habits, and where our money's going. God, I pray that we would be um, warned in the way that you intend for us to be uh, as we look at some of these examples in Scripture of of people that were frivolously spending and missing the needs around them. God, we don't want to be that. We don't want to have to tell people that are willing to sell everything that they have to stay here because we don't want to give up some, some luxuries. God, I pray that we'd be willing to cut ties with things that aren't necessary. That as C.S. Lewis communicated, there would be things that we would like to do if we weren't believers. because We'd have money to do them, but we're putting our treasure in heavenly things versus earthly things and in eternal pleasures versus temporary pleasures. God, I thank you for how generous this church has been. Every year they've exceeded our expectations and God, I know that's you blessing us financially. And God, I know that it's the Holy Spirit protecting us from covetousness. But God, when we first started talking about these these goals that we had as a church, we prayed that you would increase our finances so that we could give to make these things happen. And so, Father, I pray over the coming year that you would create additional job opportunities, that you would create income raises at at our current employer's. God, that you would would allow us to find the money to send these people overseas. God, protect us from the greed and covetousness that would keep us holding that money back. God, we want this to be a a gift where no one's being compelled to do this by anyone here. The Holy Spirit is the one compelling them. In the same way the Holy Spirit compelled Abram to give and to respond to the, to the great victory. Father, we want to, in anticipation of the great victory in Uganda, be able to give to the possessor of heaven and earth who's promised to take care of all of our needs. Teach us contentment. Create in us a desire to give, Father.